And I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Say what? You you didn't invite me? That's okay. That's okay. I'm so happy to be here. It's all good. I've got so much to tell you. So firstly, I'm a comedian and improviser. And secondly, I'm on a mission with Bumble to find out if romance is dead. That's right. I decided to set upon a journey, digging through the trenches, pulling apart the heartache, eating lots of chocolate, singing love songs at the top of my lungs. And even though this is what my usual Saturday night is, on this quest, I will also be talking to musicians, filmmakers, bakers, wedding planners, psychologists, writers, and more to truly understand what creates that spark. What is romance? What does it all mean? And will love find a way? Sorry, excuse me, can I get a cup of chai from Chai and Biscuits? Yeah. <laughs> my name, Kaniz, Kaniz Surka, the full name, yeah. Chai. Two sugars, thank you. Cuddling under a starlit sky in Gulmarg, making wine together in Tuscany. A quiet villa on the Bora Bora coast. Dinner on the dunes in Rajasthan. Scuba diving in Fiji. Or a sit down on Marine Drive. Romance isn't just butterflies in the belly and poetry on a page. An awesome romance is also built on a memory bank of experiences. Shared quality time of uninterrupted togetherness with the perfect Insta-worthy backdrop. Which brings us to the theme of this episode, travel and romance. To help me on this journey, I've spoken to founder of travel duet Pritesh Shah, filmmaker Paromita Vora, and editor of Condonat's Traveller Divya Tani. As I seek out the perfect couple's paradise, I have also discovered the difficulties couples face trying to find a moment alone. So to begin, when we think about romantic trips, honeymoons are the first thing we think of, right? It made sense that I speak to Pritesha, who designs couples-only getaways like honeymoons, anniversaries, birthdays, and that kind of thing. What is it about travel that makes it so romantic, Pritesh? You know, it's a very, very personal journey. I think what... What I definitely know is that travel is something that gives very positive vibes to people. I think that's something where you break away from your day-to-day life and you look forward to that time where you experience different things, you know, I guess. And and probably that's romantic as well, yeah. I want you to know, how do you decide what type of honeymoon works for a couple? Because like I saw your website and it has an extensive questionnaire. Each itinerary is an art. So the way we look at it is uh, when we get these questionnaires, when we do a qualitative session over a phone or a, over a meeting with them, we actually get more into their insights of who, what they like, what they don't. And we actually make them spell it out as well as to, you know, if it could be the girl likes local culture, learning new skills, the guy might like nightlife, wants to do city breaks, you know, so people have varied tastes, right? And in marriages, I mean, uh, there's a lot of love marriages and arranged marriages both, right? And specifically in arranged marriages, we feel more so it's uh, relevant that we play that role of making sure that they bond over experiences. So hence that fine balance of adding experiences that each one of them like and making sure the other one gets involved. Mm. Uh, we've had couples, for example, who are very social, love meeting people, love being outdoorsy, you know, interacting with local culture, all of that, you know, mixing in with others. 
On the other hand, we've had couples who are like, Pradesh, we want to go as far as possible from the crowds and we just want to cocoon ourselves into a beautiful property or whatever it is, right? So yeah. I think I think it's to an extent, it's very personal, what makes or breaks uh, the whole thing. Yeah. But what I know in general works for everyone we've seen is diverse experiences. Pradesh, what are the most unexpected or underrated romantic destinations you have come across? Typically, you see that people will travel to Europe, US, Australia, New Zealand, mm. you know, within Southeast Asia. That is a by and large, the typical travel journey of uh, most most people to start off with, I think. Yeah. But having said that, you know, during our travels, we'll, we've come across some magical countries and beautiful destinations which are so underrated. People run to Kenya or uh, South Africa for safaris and other experiences. But I was in Botswana in December uh, last year. And it's like literally the, the savannah, the African experience that you see in the movies. So untouched, so wild, and it's not commercial at all. And I think that well, I was blown away by that. How has the pandemic affected couples traveling? We're definitely seeing that a lot of couples who, whose weddings got postponed or have decided to push their wedding in the near future mm. are now really looking forward to their honeymoon and trying to see if they can do trips that they could do pre-COVID times. Yeah, so I think there is a pent-up demand is what we see. I saw some video of this couple who on their third date, this is America, but they went to Costa Rica on their date mm-hmm. uh, to spend the weekend together to get to know each other better. And then the lockdown happened and they've been stuck in Costa Rica for eight months together now. <laughs> <laughs> Did they already get married? <laughs> Two people might not necessarily have the same interests or travel styles. One might be a loungy beach bum, the other might be an adrenaline-seeking adventure junkie. Because I remember on my honeymoon, I planned a trip to gorgeous Turkey. I wanted to visit five to six different cities on our two-week trip and even planned out an extensive itinerary. My husband, on the other hand, wanted to stay in one city the entire trip. And that's what we ended up doing. Needless to say, we are now divorced. But for my next relationship, I would like to know, how do you find a balance? I spoke to Divya Tani, editor of Condonas Traveller. How do couples who have different traveling styles, like find a trip or schedule that suits them? So listen, I'm not going to beat around the bush. It is tough. Okay, there is just no easy solution for this. Um, like I said, the most, the one thing that I feel about this is that you learn so much about a person when you travel with them. Mm. So I would tell every couple in the world, go on a trip before you guys get engaged, please. Or before you guys get serious in any way, go on a trip together because you will learn so much about a person when they're not in their own familiar environment. Um, and you change as well when you're in a different environment. You don't always realize, but you know, you might uh, tend to be a bit more paranoid. You know, He might be really easygoing. You yeah. might get freaked out when something doesn't go according to the schedule. Um, he might really want to be impromptu about doing things. Uh, and like you said, you know, you may have four cities you want to go to and he's kind of like, will you please relax? Yeah. You know, this is meant to be a holiday. So everyone has different styles of travel and it says so much about your personality. So I think really do not underestimate how important it is to travel with somebody mm. before you get serious about them. Because that, honestly, that is a deal breaker for a lot of people when they come back from a trip and they are like, oh my God, I did not know about this person. There is no way I could live with 
this person. So I think that's super important. Um, and the second thing I kind of want to say about this, and it's it's a it's a, it's kind of a theory that I have. Uh, it's a bit half baked. It's not completely uh, completely sorted in my head, but um, but really I do feel that whatever your attitude is towards travel, kind of determines your attitude towards romance and relationships. Okay. So I think that if you are a really open person when it comes to travel like you're big on adventure you're big on going to a new place it doesn't freak you out mm -hmm. when things don't go according to the plan or to the schedule you don't need an itinerary necessarily you know you're really happy to talk to strangers and you're really you know there's a lot of different things that come into play when you're traveling and i think that if you're really open when you travel and you're sort of like you know what it didn't go according to the plan i missed a flight i'm now stuck in this terrible place for the next couple of days um and if you take it with a pinch of salt and you're like well you know i'm gonna make the most of this place wherever i am mm. and you go out and you do the best that you can i think you're kind of going to be the same way in life and in your relationships as well i think you'd be a bit more open i think you're a bit more accepting i think that you're happy to improvise you're happy to compromise so i really do think that a lot of your relationship behavior you can kind of tell from a person's travel behavior and it's also you know it's really interesting to see like i said it's not just another person that you're that's going to change in a different environment you're going to change as well so you might not realize how you actually react to plans going uh, awry or you may not actually realize what you're like um you know six hours into like this extended airport layover when you know you can't shower or you haven't you know brushed your teeth and you, you know you get really crabby or you're eating bad airport food and you just get you know really hangry or something so you know you you change as well so it's really important i think for both people um it's it's a good learning sort of experience i think what do you think makes indians a different sort of traveler are we more adventurous are we more conservative? Absolutely. So, um, so you know, I, I go to a lot of international travel trade conferences. And mm. um, the big things that everybody wants to talk about when it comes to India yeah. are destination weddings and honeymoons. We are world famous guys for our destination weddings and for our honeymoons. The entire travel industry across the planet is trying to get Indian destination weddings and Indian honeymooners. And the reason of course for that is that there's loads of money in it for them yeah. but um it's really interesting when it comes to honeymoons because indians have honeymoons that are different to anyone else in the world any other culture so partly this is because a lot of our marriages still tend to be arranged marriages and so our honeymoons are much longer so that couples get the time to really get to know each other right, right. so right. um in fact uh I think it's actually Ahmedabad where the number of honeymooners that come out of there, they go on honeymoons that are three months long. What? And they go, yup. And this is, by the way, this is very common. It's not unusual. And they go all around the world. So they start in Europe and then they go to the US and they actually like they even end up going all the way to like Fiji and Australia and New Zealand and then they come back home so it's really extraordinary the kinds of places that they go to the other thing that Indians are very well known when they go on honeymoons is that they don't just spend all of their time in a hammock on the beach mm. they want to do everything 
that they can do. And that includes a lot of shopping. So nowhere else do people really go shopping on their honeymoons, but Indians are very famous for going shopping on their honeymoons as well. Um, but they also want to go skydiving and they also want to go jet skiing and they also want to do, um, you know, restaurants and the reservations for those are made like months in advance by these travel agents so we tend to have super super elaborate honeymoons um so this is sort of like what the honeymoon scene has been for a long time but obviously in the last few years we've seen a lot of this changing because couples you know a lot of couples that have been dating have traveled already yeah. before and so first of all they're not going on super long honeymoons um second you know a lot of people are doing what's called the mini moon mm. which is where they go away for like four or five days right after the wedding see our wedding season obviously tends to be towards the end of the year yeah. and so you have christmas you have new year's let's face it it's also peak season rates everywhere yeah and people have taken quite a bit of leave um, for the wedding part of things. And so they just go away for four or five days to kind of relax and de-stress from all of that wedding drama. Yeah. And then they take a much longer honeymoon for like two or three weeks later on in the summer when they can go perhaps to Europe mm. um, and, you know, just have a great time. But definitely their, um, their choices of where they're going are absolutely changing. People are going, South America has become huge. So Brazil, Peru, Argentina. Yeah. Um, I think for a lot of people, they think of the honeymoon as being like, it's this once in a lifetime thing. So let's go somewhere where it's gonna be really hard to go at another point in our lives, um, which is a great way of looking at it. I mean, take the opportunity and go to the place that's been on your bucket list forever. Yeah. Um, Japan has also turned out to be a hot new favorite the other thing that, that I think is also growing and I hope to see more of it is Africa as a honeymoon destination. So South Africa has always been super popular um, and obviously it gives you the safaris, but it also gives you this amazing sort of city and then it also gives you the beautiful coast and then it gives you wine country, which is the most gorgeous wine country ever. Um, and so you get all of these different things, but people are really now becoming a lot more adventurous and going out into other parts of Africa. Mm. So Kenya, Tanzania, Rwanda, um, Zimbabwe. I mean, all of these places now have become really, really um, interesting to people because they're looking to really sort of push the boundaries up and do something that they haven't done before that feels like a really once in a lifetime thing. I mean, if your wedding is going to be a once in a lifetime thing, hopefully, yeah. then your honeymoon should be as well. What do you think makes a city or a place romantic, in your opinion? This is going to be super cliched, um, but I'm going to say it anyway. You know, when I think about romantic places, um, very often, the first thing I think about is nature. So I think about, you know, lots and lots of stars in the sky. And when I think about that, I don't think there's a more amazing place than Ladakh. Ladakh is just spectacular. The sky is just so incredibly clear. You feel like you're seeing a million stars at once without exaggeration. So I think that is an extraordinary place. Um, otherwise, I think about, you know, the beach and I think about amazing villas with infinity pools mm. that are overlooking the ocean. And it's just this blue that goes straight into the horizon. Um, and then, you know, I, you know, that always makes me think about Thailand because it's, you know, it's just, it makes the most beautiful villas right on the ocean. Mm. Um, they're so, so stunning. And then there's, you know, there's obviously incredible cities that have 
beautiful history um, and that are such a joy to walk through. So, um, you know, Paris, of course, has that. Prague has that. St. Petersburg, I think, is just absolutely exquisite. It just feels like the whole city is is poetry. You know, mm. people are walking. It's like they're walking around thinking they're in a movie. You know, everyone looks beautiful. The language is lovely. You know, you feel like you could just, it's like a film set all the time. Um, but really, you know, the one thing that I have realized, and I guess because I travel so much for work, um, I'm not always traveling with a partner. Yeah. So I feel this more than anywhere else. But you could be in Paris and you can have an absolutely awful time if you're with the wrong person. Yes. And if you're with the right person, I'm sure everyone has said this, but it's true. If you're with the right person, um, anywhere is romantic, you know? So I think that, I think it's, you know, it's great to have, uh, I think when you're choosing a place, it's really important to uh, think with your partner what kind of trip you guys are looking for and try and pick a place that you know that the both of you would enjoy walking through or just, you know, uh, if you're both beach people or mountain people or desert people, safaris, I think, are amazing, again, because you're out in the middle of absolute wilderness. Mm. Um it's it's beautiful fresh air it's all green you have these incredible lodges um whether it's in india or in africa or or anywhere else um and they're just you know you you wake up really early in the morning and you're going out into the jungle and you're sort of your whole goal for the day is to spot as much wildlife as possible and you're seeing it all happen in front yeah. of you um, and it's you come back and then of course you have a you know a beautiful camp set up at night. It's it's all so magical. So I think it's important to talk to your partner about the sort of trip that you guys are envisioning, because that's really really important. Um, don't imagine that because you're going to Paris, it's going to be uh, a romantic trip. Because if the two yeah. of you don't really care for that kind of food, or you don't really want to be walking around in a city surrounded by lots of people, and let's face it, this current situation aside, Paris is full of tourists mm. so you have to think about the sort of trip that you guys enjoy and then make sure that you're actually carving out time to spend that time together and really connect as opposed to just running from one site to the next you know I think that's another big mistake people make yeah but yeah I think if you're with the right person pretty much anything anywhere you go is going to be romantic hey hello watch where you're going you know, who has time to go for holidays nowadays? I don't. We live such busy lives. Like every day, I have to go buy bhaji. Then I have to cook the bhaji and then I have to eat the bhaji. I'm just too busy. <laughs> Not everyone can just pack up their bags and take a long trip with their partner. There are so many things that stand in the way. And especially in India, public displays of affection, even booking a hotel room together, can be met with morality and shaming. How do we deal with this sort of discrimination? Uh, because on one end, we, we, you're saying we should travel before we get married so we get to know each other. On the other hand, like it's not as easy, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. I think that there are, unfortunately, a lot of people that are slightly prejudiced or biased against unmarried couples. Um, I think that, you know, gay couples have an even harder time with mm -hmm. this because mm -hmm. a lot of people um, will have rules against taking them in. Um, and, you know, to be perfectly honest, a lot of people are not even comfortable with, with single girls yeah. uh, being out or uh, traveling, staying with them, or uh, for that matter, just sitting in a hotel bar on their own or, or eating a meal by themselves in a, in a restaurant. So I think that yeah. um, a lot of this makes people uncomfortable. But, you know, the reality is that there are far more 
places available that are friendly to unmarried couples and gay couples and solo women travelers than they are not. Mm. And I think it's really important that we, even if you are married, I would say to everyone that is married, um, please, if you know that someone is being biased against uh, somebody else, don't stay in that place or have a conversation yeah. with them about it. Because we really do need to do everything it takes to make things better for everybody. Um, and you know, I think travel is really just, travel is all about learning something new and trying to understand the culture and the mindset of another person. Things are changing in this country, not as fast as we'd like, but they certainly are changing. And I yeah. think the more that we push people to change, um, the more that we have these conversations and really try and make them understand, um, the better it will be for all of us, really. My friend and fellow comedian Adil Malik said that when it comes to PDA, in Western countries, sharing a kiss on the bus is met with ah, but in India, it's usually met with ha, shame, shame. And when I see PDA, I'm usually like ba, lame, lame. <laughs> but Kaniz Masi, why are you watching us? Then why are you doing it in front of me? <laughs> anyway. What is it about simple acts like holding hands, hugging and kissing that makes other people uncomfortable and even get angry? Here is where Paromita Vora, indie filmmaker and founder of Agents of Ishq, a multimedia portal about sex, love and desire, comes in. She was able to give me some perspective on how couples navigate expressing their love. You know, one of the things you did on Agents of Ishq was you made PDA maps. Yeah. And and I think I think you did you you've done a lot of work around understanding where young people can uh, express their love, you know, or physicalize their love or romance. And so one of the questions I want to start with was how do you think Indians navigate lack of privacy, space and freedom when it comes to love or romance? A lot of people travel today in a very Instagrammy kind of way, right? There are like six okay. places you got to go to get that great Instagram shot mm. and the place is known to you already. So very often when you're going to a place, uh, you are doing it very much like you might uh, uh, meet somebody on a dating app, which is, I already know what is important in this place. Okay. I'm not going to go to this place and be open to the unknown experience because I got to take six whatever sites, right? Right. So some of the idea of curiosity and discovery about a place also comes from curiosity about people who are in a place. And similarly, when you look at a city or you look at, a, at, look at where people are in the city and what they're doing, it shows you a whole new idea of the city, right? Mm. So for example, I think that when we ask people, the way that the PDA map came about was we asked people, like, what's your favorite PDA spot in any city? Hmm. And it was interesting because you see that A, people seek privacy, but maybe we have a very different definition of privacy that yields when you live in a city like Bombay. So I think that Bombay has, at least if you think about Bombay, which is the place that mostly people answered from, uh, has what I call a public privacy, that there is a capacity for people to be in a very public location and be doing something very private, like making out. Yeah. And the seaside is a primary example of that in Bombay, right? But I, and you know, people always mock it. And people always look at it as a negative thing. That because we have no space and we live with families and whatever, oh, and now people are going out there and making out on the seaside and that's so desperate. 
and i think that's a very elitist and stupid thing to say yeah. because i think it shows that the city has the capacity to respect the privacy of people mm. so you'll have like the uncle ji is taking a walk and you'll have young people making out <laughs> when you go to the seaside or you go to the park when you see such a variety of types of people sharing romantic or even sexualized moments it says something both about the absence of space but it says something about the city's ability to accept mm. the privacy of people right within the very big public space so i think uh, people navigate it in those ways at a philosophical level but an interesting piece of information i had about this thing was that yeah. i was in cairo one year and uh, uh, for a conference and a bunch of us were walking by the river and a colleague said that wow it's so nice to see so many people making out uh you know it's, it seems to be indicative of so much freedom and uh, somebody else said well it is and it isn't because all these people who've come here into the center of the city they probably don't live here and the city center allows them to be far away from the gaze of people who know them in their neighborhood yeah so i thought that's interesting right there are so many layers to what you understand about people pda tells you so many histories of a place so yes probably many of the people out on marine drive or in bandra who are making out they are not in their own neighborhood correct they are away from the eyes of those who might in their community uh, and area tell their parents or whatever so there is this sense of anxiety around relationships of choice and romantic relationships that you see when people are making out and then there is the great respect that people in the city are affording these lovers yeah. you know nobody is chasing them away nobody is making fun of them nobody is saying anything people just walk past and respect their privacy and there's a beauty and poetry about that and i think we should celebrate it um but of course the third layer is e- extreme inventiveness <laughs> that's when you know that love and sex can really change the world right so because you if you've got to have it you've got to have it so one of the great things that people do is make out under umbrellas which for the longest time i used to think is because of the sun <laughs> but it's really in order to create a tiny room for yourself like underneath that umbrella right. or underneath a uh, scarf you know people who have cars or motorbikes use those vehicles as a kind of little mobile room in a way to make out mm. um somebody had done an amazing post on all the really good areas for pda in iit campus oh and you know so there would be like behind so and so lab in that corner there's a little triangular space where you can go in and nobody can see you so it also means that people examine their surroundings extremely curiously people have told us stories about how it also means when they don't have space that they spend a lot of intimate time with each other which is not necessarily sexual but it's very physical right mm. so like there was one couple who told us how they take infinite number of walks in the gullies of their area and they know the whole neighborhood really well because it's a way to spend time and maybe to hold hands mm. so i think interestingly it also allows them to discover sexuality in a fairly diverse way even though it's very difficult when i was 16 my dad had a rule no making out in my house under my roof so every time i wanted to make out with my boyfriend we would climb on the roof instead haha we were not under your roof but on top of your roof papa got you <laughs> with the rise of oyo rooms and timeshares it's interesting how the lack of space and privacy has led to innovation as well people are trying all kinds of ways to find the space and time to be together 
Yes, I mean, I think that, uh, I, I mean, whether youth are empowering themselves or whether businesses are responding with a certain uh, sensible compassion, uh, I mean, both the things are probably happening together. But I think, like, you know, in the PDA map, people told us, like, a very popular place for PDA was the staircase. Yeah. So that, like, people would go up to the final staircase in the building which leads to the terrace because nobody's likely to be walking up and down that part of the staircase. Mm. So imagine how carefully you surveil your surroundings and figure out where you'll get a little privacy, um, as, as well as when they won't, at what time periods people won't be there. So I guess in that sense, lovers know the city very, very well. But I think that, yes, when people find these ways, you know, when, what is su supposedly either forbidden or difficult, when people persist and they find these ways, mm -hmm. they create an opening for the next thing to happen. So actually, it's thanks to all those lovers and all those hotels that did the rent by the hour and made out by the seaside, yeah. that today we have something like an Oyo Rooms, right? And I think the important thing about that is that it also creates a psychological impact that those who always felt a little bit like icky or is it sleazy that we're in this place now feel it's okay. You know, it's yes, there's a shortage of space. This is a space that I'm taking to have my intimacy with somebody. And that kind of miasma of this is somehow a little sleazy starts to vanish from that. Yeah. And that I think is very important because it makes us relaxed with ourselves and it makes us relaxed with the idea of sex as well. So other than the PDA map, the other maps that we've made are actually, we've made two other types of maps. Like one is a queer map of Mumbai, right? Mm -hmm. Now the queer map of Mumbai is not a map of like the hot spots or LGBT friendly spots. It's not that kind of a map. Okay. Actually, it's a map of time as much as place. I think the PDA map and the queer map are analogous because in some ways, like all the lovers were not allowed to have a space. Yeah. You know, if you get married, even if you like, even married people have a hard time in a crowded city, right? Yes. So it's not as if every couple who's out in the park or in or by the seaside is an unmarried couple. It is sometimes people who are married who don't have space in the houses where they live to have privacy. Totally. But there's a permitted privacy for them, right? When you look at, when you see couples or people making out by the seaside or in a park, you may imagine that they're all unmarried people but that's not true mm. because the city is dense and people often live in families together in small homes very often people who are married also don't have space for privacy and intimacy so they may go out to the seaside or to a hotel or to another space for that privacy but the difference is only that that's a permissible privacy it is always understood and accepted that a married couple will want privacy but the moment that you are not married so that's whether you're a straight couple or a queer couple of any kind, there's always a gradation of taboos around that. And so when you look at the maps, which are the history of PDA or the history of queerness, what you're really seeing is people who persisted in their desires mm. and pushed and changed the shape of the world we live in. The city, our lives, what we understand to be love and what we understand to be relationships and desires, right? So in a sense, every place is made up of the lives that have changed today. Places also allow lives to change because the city is big. It's uh, There are spaces of anonymity. Yeah. Lovers can go away, away from the prying eyes of their neighbors or their communities. Queer people can find places to meet which are which are more anonymous and where they won't be so much in danger. Yeah. And the fact that the city has a constraint of space also allows these anonymous spaces for that which has been otherwise forbidden to flower somehow. 
and then to change the shape of life and the world. You mentioned earlier about like, you know, they, on one side, there are people who look down uh, like the very elitist approach to like how desperate are these people that they want to make out in public. Mm-hmm. And then there's the other side of, you know, it's immoral to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, like like organizations or people have taken moral stands against couples displaying affection in public. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so how do we how do we navigate that? I think uh, it's a great conflict of our times, right? Mm-hmm. Where on the one hand, there are a lot of changes and there is more mobility. Uh, so we are not all living as traditionally as maybe once we lived. Uh, people are moving from their traditional neighborhoods. Like if you're in a small city or a small town, you may have lived in the say old part of the city, but then there's a new development on the outskirts of the city. So you're moving there. Yeah. So there's a continuous shift and change. And that's also cultural, right? Yeah. Um, so you do see a lot of pushback against it. And it's typically in this moralistic way. I mean, a lot of a lot of the moral attitudes that we currently hold, yeah, they are a result of the colonial encounter, right? It is colonial laws, colonial attitudes, like in the 19th century, basically after 1857, but also at the time leading up to that, mm. um, that there was a kind of morality that was brought in. I'll give you a specific example the banning of, there was something called the Anti-Notch Girls Act, right? Okay. So the banning of all performance arts which were erotic, mm. which in the past had not been considered to be bad, right? Mm. Like, for example, if you were a Tawaif, if you were uh, a Bhand, if you were a person who is a performer, if you're a transgender performer, for example, one cannot say that they were necessarily respectable parts of society, but they were not considered shameful. And the word bazaar, you know, the fact that many such like quotas and all of these spaces existed in bazaars uh, meant that they were there out there in the open. They were not in hidden spaces. Mm. Uh, but with the coming of colonial rule, everything that was erotic and expressive of what we call shringharas, like expressing the sensual side of life, yes, was kind of conflated with sex work and banned. So what it did do is it sent underground many of these performers and it uh, it brought a kind of huge moral blanket onto things which had always coexisted, mm. including queer sexualities. Right? I don't think that we should ever fall into the false trap of thinking that oh, once upon a time in India, everybody was just cavorting and doing whatever they wanted. Right. I mean, marriage has always been a very big part of the society. Endogamous marriage has been a big part of our society. And the only thing is that there was a coexistence of the idea of love, romance, sensuality, uh, non-marital sex of all kinds, you know, and queerness as well. And you do see evidence of it in a number of books, poems, sculpture, etc., so on and so forth. And it has persisted into the Mughal era, but it is only with the coming of British colonization that we see a great sanitization of the culture and conflating everything with wrong, immoral, sex work, etc. And shame, the idea of shame. Yeah. But also the idea of like shaming because you're imprisoning people, you're robbing them of their livelihoods, you're actually taking away the dignity of their humanity. Whilst by saying that what they do is wrong. So I think that seems to have permeated so deeply into our culture that we actually have begun to believe it is our culture, you know, but it isn't. What's the most romantic place in the city for you? I don't have a place because um, I feel like 
the person you're with is what makes the place romantic and not the space itself. That said, you know, I love the seaside. Okay. So I think the seaside in Bombay is always the most romantic place. It's not for no reason that it's iconic of the city, that lovers hold hands along the sea. There are so many hurdles two people have to go through to find a romantic place and space for themselves. It's not easy. And considering the time we live in where social distancing has only made it harder, I come back to my question again. Is romance dead or will love find a way? I mean, I think romance is certainly going through a big transition. I don't know if it's dead, but it sometimes it's faltering a little bit. But I do think that desire always finds a way. And uh, uh, love and romance is a deep human need for sensuality and emotional sensuality. And that human beings will always find a way to express it. And I also want to say that I do think that in many parts of India, romance is not at all dead. And people behave in nicely foolish romantic ways that make me grin. <laughs> oh my God, romance is not dead. <laughs> <laughs> romance is so not where I'm, I'm just I'm just even offended at the question I mean romance is not dead romance is everywhere and it's up to you to just find it you know it's up to you to see it I mean as you can see right there the we are having the highest divorce rates and we're having the highest marriage rates as well right so yeah I mean if you look at China for example the statistics say that after the lockdown was over there was the highest demand for people wanting to get married, you know. And, and if you see overall around the world as well, that on the other side, the flip side of it is because people were locked down and in, in together, there is as many divorces happening as well. So I think it's a catch-22 situation. But really, I think for the, for the hopeless, the romance always exists, I guess. Thank you so much for listening to Is Romance Dead by Bumble India. Join us next week as we continue our quest to explore the things we consider romantic. Download Bumble now and make the first move because love will find a way. I'm Kani Sirka. This is a podcast series by Bumble India. Executive producers Alixa Nahar and Georgie Koop. Directed by May Thomas. Production by Made in India.